Welcome to the 304th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'm joined by Cassandra Alexander, a registered nurse who has just published the book, The Year of the Nurse, about critical care in the time of pandemic. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 6th, 2021, there are 3,986,720 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The Philippines is reporting 25,192 deaths from COVID-19. The United States reporting, as of today, 605,567 deaths from the disease. Mexico reports 233,689 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. I'm going to read two of the brief obituaries from an extraordinary website called In Memoriam, Fallen NYSNA Nurses. And this is published by the New York State Nurses Association, which you can find at nysna.org. In Memoriam, Fallen NYSNA Nurses. Stephen Malagraf, RN. Stephen Malagraf worked in the emergency department at Nyack Hospital and was an active NYSNA member until he passed away on April 22, 2020. He was 59 years old. Stephen started working at Nyack Hospital in 2008, and his co-workers described him as a true mentor and leader. Several of Steve's colleagues sent along these remembrances. There are people you meet in your life that connect seamlessly with everyone. They leave you feeling happier and stronger. You stand taller and prouder having had them as a friend. That was our Steve. Husband, father, NYPD, ESU, 9-11 responder, SOAC ambulance member, ER nurse, teacher, grad student, employee and friend. So many hats that Steve wore so well. Steve's larger-than-life character touched many people. He liked to talk and we liked to listen. In all these roles, he brought joy, laughter, compassion, and above all, humility. We will always treasure the laughter he gave us and the things he taught us. As a mentor, no question was stupid. He took time to share what he knew. Steve was a step-up-to-the-plate colleague, never running from bedbugs or Ebola. He kept us entertained with his extravagant stories from his rich life experiences. Thank you for being our friend, colleague, and partner in the ER, Stephen. We are better for having known you. Rest in peace, Nurse Steve. Continue your nursing practice from above. We will never forget you. Obituary there of Stephen Malagraf, RN tribute on the In Memoriam page, Fallen NYSNA Nurses.
Teresa Lacaco, RN. Teresa Lacaco, a 68-year-old pediatric nurse at Kings County Hospital Center, passed away over the weekend of March 28, 2020. Teresa was a 48-year NYSNA member serving patients in New York City's public hospital system since 1972. Norma Wilson, a colleague and friend of Teresa, sent these words. Shock and disbelief are my feelings right now. As a new graduate, I had the pleasure of working with Lacoco. We called each other only by last names at work. Lacoco always had the biggest smile. No matter how busy the pediatric units were, she was loved by all. Rest in peace. Teresa was a hardworking, dedicated New York nurse. She was a loving, warm person. She will be sorely missed. Rest, my friend. One of Teresa's colleagues sent this remembrance. I had the honor of working with Teresa Lococo for the 41 years for 41 years at Kings County Hospital. We worked together in pediatrics during my first years, and she was a mentor, teaching me the ropes. In my later years as a pain management nurse, I often went to the pediatric unit where we assisted many patients in pain. He was a patient advocate, never hesitating to call me to help alleviate their pain. We talked of our years at the county and the history we shared. At times, she shared stories of her family with me, and I shared stories of mine. She always spoke with pride and love, a hardworking nurse who was one of the best. She will be missed. Remember, it's there of Teresa Lacaco, RN. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest. I've been really excited to have this conversation. Let me introduce Cassandra Alexander. And Cassandra is a registered nurse of 14 years in burn critical care transport and ICU units, as well as a paranormal romance author. Yeah. Most recent novel is Year of the Nurse. And I'll put up a link where you can find that on Amazon, which is forthcoming, I think, if not now, very, very soon. And I this think is maybe a, give or take 10 days. Yeah. Fantastic. So this is this is a real extraordinary opportunity to talk uh, to a nurse who's also an author, and she's written this book about her experiences working in a COVID ward in the year 2020. Cassandra Alexander, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic looks like there today. Yeah, so I live in the Bay Area. I also work in the Bay Area. And right now, our numbers still look good. Um, people are, by and large, still wearing masks in grocery stores and outdoors. And um, my hospital personally had a lull for a while there where we didn't have any COVID patients for a bit, although now we have a few. So, And vaccination uptake, it looks like a really, as so many things in the United States, a story of two countries, the states that have been getting it done and states that haven't. Where's California in that mix? Very high up. Um, I was looking at a state map today on the Internet. Um, yeah, we are we're in, we're far in the green and other uh, on a scale from green to red. We're very green, I guess, is what I can say. And uh, I think um, I feel really special to be in California because I do feel Governor Newsom did a good job with us. And then um, I feel like uh, London Breed, San Francisco's mayor, um, closed down San Francisco super early, which undoubtedly saved lives and made everybody take everything very seriously. And I feel like um, 
our kind of local ethos here in the Bay Area is that everyone wanted to get vaccinated as fast as possible, and they have done so. So I feel really good about where I live and where I work right now. So before we start talking about COVID, I wonder if we can just talk about your decision to enter nursing. Can you talk a little bit about why you went into that line of work? Yeah, so um, so I'm not going to give you like a beauty pageant answer. Uh, I haven't always enjoyed taking care of people. Um, I'm not Snow White. Um, basically, when I went to college part one back in the day, I wanted to be a doctor just so I could wind up retiring and writing. Um, and that didn't happen for me. Um, and so I came out to California for my ex and I was in a job I didn't like. And a friend of mine was all like, hey, have you thought about nursing? And at the time, my stepfather was an LVN and he had told me that I would like it as well. And then when I realized most of my prereqs transferred over, I decided I would jump ship because um, nurses at the time in California, because um, I'm not afraid to talk money because it's important for nurses to know how much money people make in other states and what unions can do for them. Um, is 14 years ago, she was an entry level nurse making $30 an hour. And, and that at the time was more than three times what I was making at my desk job. So that was my financial incentive to become a nurse, um, which was a job that I did think I like, and I actually did wind up liking. So it was a good call for me, but it's um, it wasn't out of some Florence Nightingale thing. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm sure that resonates probably for a lot of nurses. Um, society puts you in a box and tells a certain story about you without asking you much about who you are. I think that's probably true yeah. of medical professionals across the board. For sure. I, I, I wonder what. Having said that, though, you stuck with it for 14 years. So that that does say something about it being a good fit for you. What is that fit? Um, when I was a burn nurse, I loved being a burn nurse. I was a burn nurse for 10 years. And that was amazing because we got to see these magical, almost magical transformation in people's lives. Um, the type of people that get burned are usually um, like young guys that have done dumb stuff or um, kids who've gotten scalds, unfortunately. But um, by what they have in common, though, is they mostly live. If you can do the right things, they can mostly live unless their injuries are incompatible with life. And you had those patients for months while we treated them. So you really got to know them as individuals. You got to know their families. You got to know. I had one of my friends at that hospital, like she babysat somebody's dog over the weekend just to help the family out. You know, we were a really tight knit group. And that provided me with a lot of emotional satisfaction being a nurse. Um, then I uh, kind of jumped ship because we moved away from that job and I couldn't handle the commute anymore. Bay Area traffic is tragic. And um, so I did ambulance nursing for a bit to kind of see what other hospitals were local to me. And then I segued into becoming um, an ICU nurse at one of my hospitals locally, which which has aspects that I enjoy, um, but is definitely more stressful because in general, like ICU versus burn nurse, you're looking at a lot more deaths, unfortunately, just baseline. And then COVID came along and then that was uh, a lot, a lot of deaths, unfortunately. And you're a writer as well. So what's the relationship between the two parts of your life? I I, well, I wanted to be able to afford to live in the Bay Area and also write and um, and to maybe have a part-time job. And um, nursing's awesome for that because it usually has a lot of flexibility. Um, as sometimes you have to work nights, sometimes you have to work weekends. That can suck. But um, it's, it's good because you um, can have free time to do what you want and you can leave your job at work as a nurse. That's one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from um, a mentor way back in the day. She was just like, leave it at work, leave it at work, leave it at work. 
And uh, that's not something that a lot of people who work like in the tech industry can say, like my my off hours are mine because, you know, I'm not nursing people from home. And as long as I've done a good job, nothing haunts me. So I see. And the particular genre that that you're in, is that just a a lifetime passion that that Um, you followed as a creator? I've been writing since like 1998. Let me show you this uh, cheesy poster behind me. This is our Mission to Mars poster. I love it. So um, <laughs> I've written uh, science fiction, fantasy, epic fantasy, um, erotica. I've written all sorts of everything. Um, and so what they all share in common, though, is a common thread about like um, people who may not have been exceptional at the time, but who have a reason that they need to step up and become exceptional against impossibly bad circumstances and do the right thing repeatedly. Um, and whether that thing be falling in love or killing the aliens or, you know, fighting the dark evil that lies in the lands beyond it, it's that um, sense of um, empowerment that readers get when they read it, where they feel like um, something good has happened in this story. And, and, and because I was reading it, something good also happened to me. And that's what all my stories have in common. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls. And I'm talking to Cassandra Alexander today, registered nurse, who's also an author and has just written a book called Year of the Nurse. Cassandra was kind enough when I asked if she would read us some excerpts of this forthcoming work. And I, I wonder, um, since I had a chance to review some of it ahead of time, and I've got to tell you, everybody needs to grab this this is a remarkable document of our time. And and I wonder if you would, to start, maybe share an excerpt about your own mental health through the pandemic, which you're just extremely open and honest about in the work. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I picked um, a journal entry that I wrote on December 4th, which um, was before our holiday surge, but we all knew it was coming. And, um, and so this is kind of emotional. Hopefully I won't cry and I have to embiggen my screen here so I can uh, read it for you guys. So it's been a hard day to concentrate. Really. I can feel the wheels falling off again inside my head, rework and COVID and people online and in the world still being maskless anti-vax dumbasses because I don't know that I'm strong enough to do all this again for a second time. It hurts so bad and it breaks my brain. I'm so angry one minute and then so indescribably sad the next. It's like my thoughts are treading water endlessly with nothing to ever let them rest. Some things are still good, my health, my husband, our relationship, but watching the upcoming unending wave of darkness, the tsunami on the horizon just overwhelms any particular personal brightness. And there's not even a point in trying to escape it because it just is, it's everywhere. And it's not going to go away, and it's going to take months and months. And people who I am related to, even, are still so terribly fucking fucking dumb. It's really hard to have empathy for everyone. And to some degree, I don't want to anymore. I just want to hog it all for myself and people who listen. Being a good person fucking sucks, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Sucks even when you're getting paid to do it. Maybe more, because you have a legit buy-in. I have spent my whole life thinking about myself in one way. And then this year I had to go and walk through a tar pit and feel it almost stop me. And it took months for me to put myself back together into this current version of me. New Cassidy, now with dents. And so just knowing more tar is coming, more endless stupidity, more dealing with the fallout of people's bad decisions, listening to people weep on Facebook 
time because they killed their grandma, having made decisions they didn't have to make because they were let down governmentally, systemically, educationally by their churches. It's heartbreaking. I don't know how I can do my job without feeling things because that's not good for my brain. I can compartmentalize like a fucking mofo, but I know that doing too much of that leads to disassociation, which is also not good because then I feel so distant from the world. I always low-key do that anyways, but this just makes it so much worse. Between people not believing things on the internet and just in general, I had this happen when I was a burn nurse. No one wanted to know what my job was, really, because it was gross and frightening. It was just my burden to bear solo, and so I got used to it. But at the same time, I never had to see anyone wander around outdoors with lit matches, you know? I was okay holding things in back then when it was just a pack between me and my patients and my coworkers. But now that I see people wander around in society trying to, looking to, going to get burned metaphorically by this, it is really fucking hard. And in my darker moments, it makes me want to grab their faces and curve them against the pavement, which is not a very nursely thought at all. I don't enjoy being a violent person on the inside, and I'm so angry, y'all. There is so much rage in me, and I want to quench it, but to be honest, I don't know if it's safe to do that. What if that's the only thing holding me together, keeping me putting one foot after the next, just sheer fucking spite? Anyhow, I'm trying to stay connected right now, really. I know the drill, people, gardening, exercise. This is a lot on all fronts. It just is. My husband keeps telling me to go to therapy, but here's the thing about that. I never once needed therapy as a burn nurse for being a burn nurse because I had that shit on lock. For being a morbidly depressed author, yes, but never work-related. If I hadn't, though, what would my ethical responsibility be here? Because I can close my eyes and conjure up shit that would make you puke on your shoes. If I couldn't have hacked that, if I needed to share that with someone else, what civilian could I have ever expected to help? It wouldn't have been ethical of me to give that shit to someone else's brain. And that's how I feel about it now, too. It'd be different if I saw a therapist who lived on Mars, I guess, who wouldn't also be participating in this society. But obviously, by default, any current therapist would. And I don't know what they're going through. I don't want to spew shit out at somebody who may very well have lost or be about to lose a relative, scarring them too. That's not right. I don't even know what I'd say to them anyways. Hi, yes, I've been ethically betrayed by my country in general and my relatives in particular, and there's not anything I can do. Yes, I think I have PTSD. No, I manage it pretty well casually, thanks. What would even be the point? All this shit is situational, and realizing that is the only leverage on my brain that I've got. And I don't need a therapist to tell me that. I just have to tough it through again, despite the fact that round one almost broke me. Getting the vaccine will help. Watching people who didn't have to die die, though. I hope I like the new version of me, the one that I'll get to be on the other side of all this. She's going to be tougher and more distant and more weird and have even a harder time of being present. And people are going to talk to her in the future and be all, wow, that must have been so hard for you. And she'll get to smile tightly at them and say, why, yes, yes, it was. Because that's what people who move in a polite society do. It'll all fit into a box again someday. I just have to keep getting bigger boxes to shove things in is all and make sure that I don't fall in myself. That's your excerpt. <laughs>
Cassandra Alexander reading from her new book, Year of the Nurse, you can see why I think everybody needs to read this. And, um, <laughs> a lot in that excerpt, Cassandra, thank you so much for reading it and reading it so well. Um, and so honestly, um, and I, this one part of that I wanted to, to follow up is you, you said a minute ago about being a burn nurse, um, and how a lot of the patient, patients you see in that setting are maybe people who should have known better. Not the, mm -hmm. not everyone, um, but, you know, the kind of young guys doing dumb stuff thing. Um, and that's a theme that sort of runs through what you were reading about COVID, too. The sort of avoidability aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much that sort of factors in for you or for other nurses that it, it seems like as a person who's not a, a nurse and doesn't provide care, I sort of think that would be one of the hardest parts for me is to somehow, I mean, you've got to be a professional, but also sort of realize that a lot of people coming in, particularly in the second wave, maybe they haven't made a personal choice that put them at risk, but they exist in a society with people who've made choices that are putting them in that space. And that's a really hard thing to grapple with, I would think. It really is. And, you know, people who wind up reading my book will see how just tremendously sad that wound up being because that was the thing is like COVID didn't exist in a vacuum. Everybody who got it got it from someone else. So there was a transmission vector there, you know, like someone killed that grandma. Somebody killed that grandpa. Somebody, you know, gave it to their entire soccer team and maybe somebody's going to have scarred lungs for life because of that. And, and so just, just knowing that, you know, we could have stopped it all if we had had like any decent government support at all. Like if they had taken it even remotely seriously, locked us all up, started chasing programs, given us a universal basic income, pretended like they cared about half a million deaths, we, we would have been a lot better off. And I know you know that already. And I'm, I'm sorry, I just get preachy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 hard yeah and you know you never want to blame like a patient for what happens to them right you know because otherwise then people could blame me for my stuff in my future oh why are you a suicidally depressed nurse well it's because I was a nurse you know <laughs> so um it's it, it's just heartbreaking really is what it is it's, it's one thing for some kids to play with fireworks and and it to be like a discreet limited time limited thing where people make a bad decision and maybe, um, you know, they lose a couple of fingers or something, but it's something else when you see the ripples of people's bad decisions for an entire 365 plus days. So. Well, just in terms of the kind of care that you had to give, were there unique challenges, things that you hadn't seen before? Um, well, you know, so we were proning everybody. And so for um, not big science nerds who don't know what that is, it's when you flip people over on their stomachs so that they can have better access to the surface area of the lungs against their backs. Because, you know, the front of your chest, you've got your heart and other organs kind of pushing up in there. So when we get desperate for your lung function, we'll flip you on your stomach. So obviously, I've seen people flipped over before for acute respiratory distress syndrome. I have never seen an entire ward of people flipped over on their stomach for the arts that COVID was giving them as it messed up their lungs. Um, and um, 
And I just think that it really brought home like the disconnect between um, people's expectations and the reality of what we're able to give them at the hospital. Uh, the average American has like no idea what happens inside a hospital room at all. And it's not their fault. Um, hopefully you'll never forget to find out, right? It's okay to live in ignorance if it doesn't personally pertain to you. But um, TV and movies have made it look like CPR always saves people. Anytime somebody's in a breathing tube, you just got to pop that shit out and they'll be fine. Um, all sorts of lies. And people don't really understand what the extent of life support is. And at its base essence, life support is any any medical intervention we're giving you that you can live with without, um, without or have replicated outside the hospital. So if we thought you wanted a ventilator and a breathing tube, that's life support. I feel like the American populace understands that life support is important, but they don't necessarily get that a breathing tube is life support or that we're adequately supporting your blood pressure with three or four different blood pressure medications. And even though your grandma may be able to talk to you, she She's still on life support because without those, she would have no blood pressure at all. So, um, so that was maybe the biggest challenge in talking to families because COVID came out of nowhere for a lot of these people. And if they could figure out who gave their family member COVID, they were really reluctant to move in a comfort care direction or want to hear anything bad. More than once, we had people totally dodge our palliative care calls um, because they don't want to know that something bad is happening, especially something bad that they might have been able to prevent if they hadn't gone to Christmas. Mm. And so um, and then just bridging that gap on the phone with what you're saying, like I had this whole essay in my book that's just basically on ventilator function to explain it. And and if you don't know how ventilators work, me telling you somebody's on a ventilator sounds bad, but maybe not that bad until you have some context for the fact that every single value on the ventilator is maxed out and we have nowhere to go. Like, you know, if they do not live now, they are not going to live. And so Sometimes with FaceTime on iPads, you could show people and they would kind of get the gist of things. But it's really hard for people to understand, you know, the last time they saw their grandma or grandpa or, you know, brother or sister, they were just kind of panting on a couch looking a little blue. It's a huge step to imagine, oh, no, they're flipped upside down. We've got them completely medically paralyzed. We've taken control of their breathing ability. We've taken control of their heart's ability to pump. We're making them pee. We're making them poop. Like we have offlined every body system so that we can do what's best for them. And even then, it still might not work. And that was hard to get across. That theme has been one that I think every medical practitioner I've talked to, doctors, nurses, and others um, who have been in that space have shared that the absence of the family in the hospital has been really jarring for them. Mm-hmm. Has been like because it, it seems to do two things, which I wouldn't have understood. One is that the family is sort of part of the care team to a certain mm-hmm. extent. They provide needed information. They provide communication, um, but it also adds an extra duty which is what you were kind of just describing. Like, how do I get across to the family using FaceTime or phone calls or, mm-hmm. or whatever means available? How do I get across to them what's going on when they may not understand the gravity of it? And um, I wonder if you, maybe you could say a little bit, bit more about that from, from your perspective. And I know there's one of the things that that strikes me as must have been incredibly challenging throughout this time also is families all grieve in different ways. 
and that's that's part of being in the hospital. But mm-hmm. to deal with that so repetitively as this sort of additional layer of stress. So helping families say goodbye, which I think is often very personal. Maybe nurses yeah. are in the room or they're around that, that you're actively engaged in that now. Yeah. Yeah. It was a weird experience. You know, um, like with a normal death, um, usually the visitation rules get out the window. You can have like 20 people in one small room. Everybody's hanging out, holding hands, praying, singing, telling memories. And, and like I said a couple of times in my book, once, once it wraps around from the sorrow and it gets to the laughter and people are actually like remembering the good times, then I can feel that family unit knitting together into something whole. It's not that they're going to miss that person who not, it's not that they're not going to miss that person who passed, but they still have a family without them. And I feel like with COVID, we just weren't able to kind of doula that process along like we normally do and like we find satisfying to do because we want not only our patient, but their families to be as healed as they can walking away from the ICU in a perfect world. And so, <clears throat> yeah, like we, it's it's just not the same. And then, you know, and if you weren't given per- if people weren't given permission to die, like their family said, okay, let's schedule this. We can compassionately extubate them tomorrow at 3 p.m. We'll all be on FaceTime. Maybe a lucky few will be there depending on, you know, where the visitation laws are that day. Um, Then we've just kind of had people drift endlessly. And I think that's another excerpt that I pulled up for you um, later because you told me to pull too. And he was one of those people. And if if people didn't schedule things, then, you know, all we could tell you on the phone was, yeah, they're going to die. And here is like what I am seeing. And you can see them. But it's just not the same. They've still got all the tubes and we can't take anything out because the family hasn't given us for permission. So they they kind of look like they're in a horror set in a way because they've got all these abnormal tubes sticking out of their mouths, maybe their necks, maybe their arms. And um they may be like hugely puffy from all the steroids we've given them. And it, it's just not, it's just not the same as the person being there. And it, it's, it was hard to land those deaths. It didn't feel like you were landing those deaths really. I use that as a metaphor for when we have a compassionate, um, a comfort care person or a compassionate extubation. Like I like to kind of like three point land those as much as I can where everything is solid and stable. But all of the the deaths where people wouldn't let us stop and we just had to wait until the person gave them no other choice were kind of crash landing in a way, you know, and um, and that the family didn't know what they were doing. And I don't blame them for that because the American relationship between health and death is fucked. Um, and I don't blame them for having put that drama on me because I, I definitely know it's not their fault. But at the same time, being at the bedside knowing that you were just taking care of a corpse because for, you know, 72 hours, because nobody wanted to be the bad guy. It just felt so deck chairs on the Titanic and so disheartening. And no matter how much dignity and compassion you want to provide to somebody at the end, it's, it just, it just takes a toll on you knowing that all you're doing is prolonging somebody's suffering. That's a really long answer to your question, Scott. I'm sorry. I rambled. That's Thank you for sharing that. And and at the, so I wonder, I mean, at the end of every shift then for you, you write about that, you tweet about that, you find a colleague 
in the break room and you talk about that, you bring it home. Where do you put that? We we would talk about it amongst ourselves, right? You know, because oftentimes with these protracted COVID cases, once they reach the ICU, they'd be there for three or four weeks or months. We had several people who were there for months and they didn't get better. They were just there for months. Um, and so we talk amongst ourselves and, uh, but, but there's such a gap to talk about it with anybody else. But, you know, it's like, like people said, like in World War II, oh, granddad didn't talk about that that much. And it was because the experience of having done that versus the ability of somebody who knows nothing about it to get there is so hard and vast and hard to overcome. And like, that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book, because I did want lay people to understand what it was like to be a bedside nurse during COVID times. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, there's just such an experiential gap that it, even though I, I did journal and I did try to explain to some friends and I did make, you know, little tweeter comments along the way. Um, I, I don't feel like I really got to fully divest myself of everything. Probably not until I actually did this book, honestly. And just to, as a reminder for folks, the book is the year of the nurse and you can find it on Amazon, I've uh, put the link up there, and I think you could probably find it pretty easily. Who wants to check it out as an ebook? Um, just look for Cassandra Alexander and Year of the Nurse, and you'll find it there. Um, I wonder if I, I will. I'd like to ask you to read a little bit more in a minute, but before I do, there's something um, people will see when they get the book, which is it's completely innovative in its form, and it's such a document of our times in that regard. Because for anybody who has, on an average day in COVID, has participated in social media, written, some, written something personal to themselves, a, a journal entry, written a, uh, an email, had a conversation, these many different modes of communication, which I think we don't take enough time to stop and think about the different sort of emotional affect that each requires. It kind of requires you to communicate in different ways. You share some things that in your own personal diary that you're not going to share on social media. Maybe you say things on social media you wouldn't say to your to your friend sitting. Well, they're not they're six feet away, but you may <laughs> not say that to them because you're saying it to the world and not to them. And you piece all of those different things together as well as creating a narrative to help us understand those different um, modes of communicating. I mean, it seemed like you invented this because you needed it. I don't know if you've experimented with this kind of form before. I found it really, really amazing. I'm I'm super glad that you liked it because that was my one concern with this book was that it would be so strange that people would bounce off the form. But um, technically, um, the epistolary novel, which is what this is called, has like a long uh, tradition in literature. It's just fallen incredibly out of fashion, like in the Middle Ages. I think the last famous epistolary novel was Dracula. And that was comprised of like, you know, um, some of the diaries and then there was like newspaper columns, that sort of thing. And obviously Dracula was fiction, whereas is this was not. Um, so I, um, I, I wanted it to have a feel of forward momentum and I wanted people to understand what it was like on a day by day basis. And then I also wanted the opportunity to get deeper into my thoughts. And so, so that's why I structured it like I did. So my, my tweets are kind of the backbone of it where I show off all this bravado because that's my widest audience to the outside world. And I want to pretend that I'm going to be this strong nurse who's going to carry through to the end. And maybe I started off like that. I did not end up like that. Um, 
And then interspersed with that, I've got like news headlines. And I didn't send you my bibliography, but every single piece of news that I use in there as a headline, I have quoted. My bibliography for this book is actually 15 pages long um, because I wanted people to remember, oh, yes, there was a time when the CDC told healthcare staff, hey, use bandanas, which so um, and then and then just because I I was. I tried to make sense of the world as a writer. And so I just wrote a bunch in a bunch of different places, trying to explain things. And I just code switched, you know, between my writer friends who I knew were nerdy enough to get stuff versus my author newsletter, where I knew that they just wanted to read about my forthcoming dragon shifter novel. But instead there I am trying to be all like, Hey, let's talk about public health, you know, in an exciting way um, that would maybe keep them safe. Um, despite the fact that I don't know their political um, affiliation or where they live in the United States, you know? So, um, um, so, and I, I feel like, um, I saw somebody ask about this. I, I feel like doing it chronologically made the most sense um, because I like the title, the year of the nurse title. And the reason that it's called that is because very ironically, uh, the World Health Organization decreed that the year 2020 was the year of the nurse. And so nurses all across America and for all I know, the world had posters in their break room telling us all, it's the year of the nurse. <laughs> and so every time we'd go on break after having just seen somebody horribly die or be emotionally traumatized by what we went through, we'd be like, oh, sure is, ain't it? You know? <laughs> So, Wait, so that was decided ahead of time and just sort of yeah, like yeah, the year? Yeah, yeah, It was the year of the nurse. I think it was like the 200th anniversary of Florence Nightingale doing some shit. Yeah. And then, and then Scott, 2020 was so bad as the year of the nurse that they gave us a mulligan. And 2021 is also the year of the nurse for them. <laughs> wow. So, the yeah. Year, so just like everything with COVID, the year yeah. just never ends, does so it? So we're, we're still in the year of the nurse. But I thought it was going to be a really apt title for a book that's kind of in chronological order from like the very end of February where we could see it on the horizon up until yesterday, which I wrote my last entry and it is done, done, done. So thanks for explaining that the title because I hadn't fully under understood that. And I can totally picture that poster and you yeah. and your yeah. colleagues looking at that and saying, yeah, right. And thanks yeah. Sally Hoy for that, <laughs> that question in this comment, how ironic, right. Um, but let me just follow up with that. Um, what would it have taken to really be the year of the nurse in a meaningful way? Gosh. Well, if we had, deplatformed liars from the beginning, not treated public health like a hockey book, and encouraged people to do the rational, factual, scientific things that were going to make them better, right from the jump, it would have been better, you know? If we had, like, right at the beginning, and this, which I got so pissed off when I was writing last March's um, entries, you know, when I was collating them and going through them, because like COVID really hit us in March. And by the end of the Mar end of the month of March, the Trump administration was already saying, oh, we're just going to have to deal with accepted casualties, which is fucking bullshit. We're a first world country. There's no reason why we should be having to worry about huge swaths of people dying, much less for the rich people's feelings graft of the stock market. That it was just I just could not believe that our government entirely wrote us off. We were underfunded. They didn't care if we had supplies. Like, you know, nurses statistically get a higher viral load. So when they did get sick, they were more likely to get very sick and die. Like, that was heinous. So I, 
I will admit, and I admit this in the book, you know, when COVID came out, there was like a, a stunning, horrific moment where I thought, oh shit, Trump is going to do a really good job and pull us away from this because of course he is. He's at heart an American and he understands that overseeing the worst public health disaster in a century is, um, you know, going to be hugely damaging for his reputation. So he's going to do a, a crappy job, but at least he will do his job and we will all survive and then we'll be stuck with him for a second term. And then I just watched in bogglement as none of that ever happened. Like they didn't even pretend from jump that they gave a shit or cared, you know? And so, yeah, I, I have strong feelings about all that and many other things. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was hard. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Scott. I talked no. too much. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's why I wanted you on as a guest. You're not talking too much. You're, you're, we're talking, and it's 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 so illuminating and 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 important. I think a lot of people felt that moment too. Although I, you've described it better than I have, where you're sort of like, yeah, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump. Well, that's putting it very mildly, yeah. but I haven't supported a single thing Donald Trump has done. Speaking for myself, in office. But here's a moment where he's going, where it's ready made for some leadership. He has it's a very low bar. Yeah. And it will move his approval to the point where he's going to have a second term. And then he not only didn't. He aggressively that didn't. Bar, <laughs> he weaponized every aspect of it. And Adam Serwer um, has a new book out called, the, I think the book is called The Cruelty is the Point. And I'll be damned if he didn't use the pandemic in, in exactly that way, not only through not doing what he could have done, but also by punishing the rest of us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. that Because that felt super great in California when they were all like, oh, no, we're going to let the blue states drown. Like nobody the fuck understands germ theory. Like germs are just going to hang out in California and New York. Come on now. Like who was telling him that that was a good look? I mean, that was just so stupid on so many levels. But again, yes, the cruelty is the point, And he just didn't care. You know, up until he got it. I wonder if we can go a little further with that, because in your setting as a nurse, you're in a complex institutional space. I mean, so there's a federal government, which we've just been talking about, state government, then local, but also hospital with its own rules and then union. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's lots of different sort of structures kind of holding you in place. They're supposed to support you. It doesn't sound like they did. How did the other institutional supports work or not work for you? Was there anything you could rely on through that to say, okay, at least somebody gets it? Oh, Scott. Um, I thought that my manager, who was the manager through our first wave and all of last summer, did an excellent job. And then my institution decided to fire him, presumably for financial reasons. Um, right before the COVID holidays. And that fucking sucked. Up until then, I felt like he had had our backs as a unit and he was always going to maintain, make sure that we had supplies and, um, and authorize us for the overtime that we needed to do our job. And um, after he went away, we held together because that's what we do and that's what they take advantage of. But um, yeah. I don't think I don't think any institution out there right now is really looking out for us. All those letter organizations like ANCC and JACO, they disappeared. They they they'll be up your ass when they do their tours, you know, making sure that you don't have a syringe out with a cap off. But like, did they do one single thing to make any of our lives noticeably better during the pandemic? 
No, maybe they wrote a sternly worded letter or something. I don't know. Um, so they just kind of evaporated. Um, our union did try to protect us, but, um, you know, there's only so much they can do. And yeah, it's just a vast, I think I and every other nurse in America right now just has felt this vast sense of abandonment because like, you know, nobody cared, even if we had gear, like two weeks into this, you know, we were facing shortages and then people were scamming them and reselling them for higher value and just all sorts of sad things. Like I'm, that's, that's part of my, you know, there's part of my issues, I guess, it fits in with cognitive dissonance and moral distress that all of last year had, but it's also grief in the world that I thought that I lived in. I thought I lived in a place where I was valued and I would be taken care of. Um, and I, in turn, would be enabled by that to um, place value in other people and take care of them professionally. And that's not what happened. And realizing that that is gone. That's a hard thing to replace. And I don't, I don't know that any amount of third grader pizza parties that they seem willing to give us are going to fix that. quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Cassandra Alexander today about the year of the nurse and her experience uh, through the pandemic, and she's written about it. And I wonder, I asked if you wouldn't mind reading another excerpt from the book. Cassandra, is this an okay time to do that? Yeah, just let me um, let me find it in my notes here. I'm going to remove myself from the screen for a minute while you're doing that, okay? Okay, yeah, that's fine. All right, so um, so this excerpt is from, um, because Scott had asked me to prepare something in regards to, um, like that gave an example of actual bedside nursing. So that's why I chose this one. This is from the end of January when I had a patient actively dying of COVID. <clears throat> actively dying isn't a phase you've probably heard before, unless you've worked with hospice. There are assorted stages to death, which I'm not going to get into here, but when I use the phrase, I generally mean we've met the wall. There's nothing more that I or even God can do. In theory, because this patient was dying, they could have given me another assignment alongside them, except for the fact that the patient was on 10 different drips and one of them was insulin. With the patient that busy, it would have been cruel to give the bedside nurse another assignment, and it would have been inevitable that something would have dropped through the cracks, and then my actively dying patient would have just become plain old dead. So my patient had a breathing tube. I have talked about those before here. Uh, what was astounding this time was just how maxed this patient was. Their FiO2, the percentage of oxygen with which we are giving them, was 100%, which is always never good. Obviously, you can't go higher than 100. Um, and their PEEP, which is their um, peak end expiratory pressure, was 20 fucking four. Just to illustrate how mad this is, I went around to all my other coworkers and I was all, hey, what's the highest PEEP you've ever seen? And everyone said 22. 20 is what you start drowning victims off on. People who have nothing but water in their lungs. Normal, for you and I, is five. 
So 24 is just asking for barotrauma. It's so much pressure, I am literally surprised that this patient's lung just didn't burst. And then they were vented to breathe at 32 times a minute. Sit around for a minute and breathe 32 times and see how that feels. It's probably at least double your normal rate. All of this was in an effort to give their lungs as much oxygen as possible, percentage-wise, pressure-wise, and frequency-wise. One of the reasons we had their breathing rate so high is because carbon dioxide, what you exhale from your lungs, what your body expires after you take in oxygen to make energy, is an acid. We were physically attempting to help them blow off CO2 in an effort to normalize their pH. All of their labs were exceptionally bad and indicative of their kidneys being out of whack. This patient was also almost 30 liters of fluid positive. We pour fluids into people. We haven't gotten into this patient's many, many drips. And those fluids need to come out. Otherwise, they're eventually going to wind up in the lungs or the patient will swell up like Violet Beauregard from Willy Wonka. The reason we couldn't dialyze this patient, or more likely CRRT them, which is a continual form of dialysis, was because they were so unstable we couldn't even turn them over to put in the hemodialysis ports we would need. They were prone on their stomachs so that we could maximize their lung function from the jump, and they were so unstable subsequently that we were never able to flip them onto their back again. If we had, the fluid in their lungs would have sloshed around, filling up with functional tissue they did have, and they would have died before they had the opportunity to gain anything from it. And because we couldn't turn them without them dying, no one had changed the sheets out from underneath them. They had been on the same sheets for five days. So, where's that fluid coming from? One, Levifed, a common blood pressure medication. We were maxed. Two, Vasopressin, another blood pressure medication, not titratable, left on standard dose. Phenylephrine, which was also maxed. And this is also mixed in a higher volume concentration so that we could reduce the fluid load. Sodium bicarb, also concentrated for fluid reasons, given to attempt to combat the uh, patient's acidosis. Fentanyl, for pain control, not maxed. Versed, an amnesiac, hopefully makes you less aware of what the fuck is happening to you, also not maxed, because they were on Nimbex, which is a paralytic, which um, is what we give to patients who are prone so that they will ride the vent so that they don't fight the vent breathing for them because they need all of their energy for themselves. They were also on heparin, which is a blood thinner to reduce clotting that COVID can cause, amiodarone, a heart med, which stops arrhythmias, and insulin, which requires hourly insulin checks to titrate effectively. And unfortunately, because so many COVID patients are also on steroids, their blood sugars fluctuate all over the place. So, with all of that equipment going on, our goal with all of these was to keep the patient comfortable, riding the vent, completely unresponsive, intentionally so, while we kept their systolic blood pressure above 90 and their MAP, their mean arterial pressure, above 65. Were we successful? Fuck no. This patient was a DNR at least, which was good, because no one wanted to go into a code situation with someone that's unstable. How do you give CPR to someone you can't even flip over? But we had no more tools in our arsenal. There was quite literally nothing we could do for them. But the family didn't want to pull care. And I guess I get that, but like, it's just sad because there's no there there anymore. That patient's oxygenation saturation was 66 when I left. So that's the oxygenation saturation they personally have. We put in 100%, they're only experiencing it at 66%. Normal oxygenation sats are like from 95 to 100, and we usually aim for at least 92. It had been trending down for hours, and there was no setting we could go up on on the ventilator. I am positive that that patient had had an anoxic brain injury, and their blood pressure was trending down the last few hours of my shift. Same, same.
Nothing we could do. Proceeding with care was futile. I don't know if they'll be there when I go back to work tomorrow. I don't actually want them to be alive for their sake because no one is coming back from a peep of 24. Respiratory looked at their numbers in the morning and then looked at me and said, do I really need to go in there? And I said, nope. And so they didn't. And I held all the bowel care medications I was supposed to give, which was a lot of them because the patient hadn't had a bowel movement yet during their stay. Narcotics constipate you and paralytics can turn off normal peristalsis too. But do I want to make a patient who is very inevitably going to die, whom I have no way to turn over and clean thoroughly or effectively shit themselves, costing themselves dignity in their final hours? No. Just to say I got as comfort carry as I felt I could legally get. This is definitely one of those situations where having visitors would have helped us. I think even in the abstract over FaceTime or hearing it from doctors, it's just too much for a family to process without seeing. Anyhow, don't feel sorry for me. This is just another day in the office at this point. I just thought y'all would like to see how an average to busy day can roll and some of the behind the scenes thought processes I put in. P.S. This patient died three hours after I left. Cassandra Alexander reading from her new book, Year of the Nurse. And you're listening to COVID Calls. And thanks for reading that, Cassandra. Again, um, this disaster has been so strange in so many ways. The time frame that it's taken, the many different things you and I have talked about in terms of governmental failure, but also how much of the suffering uh, has been behind walls that even families can't can't go in. And so mm -hmm. the, these kind of descriptions, the one you're giving, are just, I mean, just listening to you read it, I'm just thinking I just hadn't, I don't realize these things. I hadn't realized, you know, these aspects of it. Um, so thanks for going through it in that detail. And I think people will want to, whenever they're ready, um, try to use, you know, your, your skills as an interlocutor to kind of grapple with some of this. And... So, yeah, I want to, I'm just a little bit reeling from, from listening to you read that. I mean, I really hope people I'm will. sorry. No, I thank you. No, I think, don't be sorry so at all. No, thank you for doing the work to share that. And, and I want to, uh, I mean, you have written also in the, in the work and commented um, on social media about sort of the accumulated mental stress of this time. And it's interesting, you know, you talk about the scale of the nursing workforce in the United States, and you put that in comparison to, let's say, like the size of an army mm -hmm. in the field or veterans coming home from Vietnam, including nurses. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you posit there is that, um, uh, you know, there was generation, generational impact still ongoing mm -hmm. in terms of PTSD for veterans who came home from Vietnam and for their families as well, by extension, by connection. I, I guess, I mean, it seems pretty commonsensical to me Then we're going to see a similar impact for nurses coming out of this COVID period. Many countries still right in the center of it. I want to make, make sure we don't lose sight of that. But um, is that the way to think about it? I mean, is this going to be a generational impact for nurses? Because if so, we got to stop talking post-COVID and we have to just talk about what people need so that we don't have the really terrible impacts that PTSD can cause. Yeah, yeah. And and just some of those stats, um, I, oh gosh, I have them all in my book, but yeah, definitely all healthcare workers, nurses in particular, are at much higher risk from PTSD. And um, 
female nurses are uh, more than twice as likely to um, kill themselves as members of a normal female population. So like the depression and the anxiety and the dealing with everything running downhill onto you is real. Um, institutionally or like generationally, I think the problem is now is 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 people like myself who want to continue to work at the institution where I'm at. Um, there's just going to be so much churn and burn up the top. Everybody who can retire early or like get a knee replacement and take a year off, those people are going. And then at the bottom of um, the nursing experience rungs, the people who haven't settled down yet are still able to be travelers and go around the world just like looking for the most amount of money, which I don't begrudge them because like if we're going to go through this shit, we might as well be well compensated. But there's going to be just a ton of churn and burn down there. And I think what a lot of people don't realize about nursing as a profession is that it's not just something like you get a certificate and boom, done, you're good at it. It's actually like the cumulative total of all the experiences that not only you have had as a nurse, but every other nurse on your floor has had. Um, because we talk to each other about everything all the time. Like we, the first thing, if I see anything strange, I'll talk to my neighbor like, hey, have you ever seen this before? You know, and maybe it's like, oh yeah, they did that yesterday. But, or maybe it's like, oh no, that's a bad thing. Let's go talk to a doctor, you know? And so there's just going to be this brain drain that will eventually be supplemented by new grads coming in, but they won't have had the breadth of experience that experienced nurses do by definition. And they're not going to be able to stopgap that and help people as much as they want to. And it won't even be their fault. It's just so much of nursing is an experiential thing that you have to go through to become good at. So, um, and I, I do think that we're probably about six months out from um, all sorts of hospitals saying we can't get enough nurses. You know, I I've looked at job. I've looked at job boards myself. My friends who work across the country have sent me job boards from their own hospitals that they work at. You know, one of my friends, she works at a place that's got like one hundred and seventy four openings for nurses. And um, yeah, like. I mean, why would you want to be a nurse right now if you didn't have to? And if you were going to be a nurse right now, why would you be someplace that doesn't take vaccination or wearing masks seriously if you had any amount of mobility at all? So, um, yeah, so I I think it's going to set nursing back. And I'm I have thoughts about what we can do to fix that. But they're pretty global because institutionally, I don't know that our institutions have the will to change just yet. Well, I would, that was my next question. I wonder if you wouldn't mind, even if there are global solutions, what can change yes. in nursing education or, or um, anything? It's, it's not even nursing education. Basically, nurses need to be incentivized to stay at their current hospitals. And, and so here's the thing. Here's the thing, Scott. And I feel horrible saying this, but this is like the cold calculus of the, cold, the, the COVID nurse on display. We kept showing up to work in horrific conditions um, stressed every day that we were going to die or take something home to our family. We didn't do that for the honor of taking care of people who we were pretty sure were going to die anyways. The reason that we kept showing up day after day was because our coworkers counted on us and we counted on them. It was a total in the trenches mentality for that entire year. We knew that we had responsibilities to pull that yoke with them. That said, 
it does not take very much at all for the morale of a floor to unravel. One or two experienced nurses retire or leave or go for greener pastures. And there's no reason for the people who are only at work to keep working with those coworkers who they love and treasure and who knew they, they knew had their backs. There's not much of a reason to stick around, you know? And so I think that American healthcare views us as um, like, they don't value our individual nurses contribution. They, they view us as replaceable commodities, which super stings after having been a hero all last year. Um, but if they're not going to allow their nurses to unionize, if they're not going to at least give free parking spaces um, or parking passes, there are nurses who have to pay to park after last year. Can you believe that? I cannot. Um, or, or giving bonuses or just something, some material thing to acknowledge a thank you for everything that we did. Um, it's it's going to be, it's just weird times right now. Weird times. People are just going to leave like rats flinging a ship. And, and if you cannot retain good nurses on your nursing floor, you almost by definition cannot hire good nurses on your nursing floor because who wants to be the lone voice, the lone voice of experience on a floor full of new grads who don't know any better, you know, we all have life. We all have personal licenses to protect. Right. So, you know, nobody wants to be in a situation where you're like, Oh shit, I'm the charge nurse here. Nobody here has more than two years of experience. You can just feel your license blowing in the wind, you know? And if anything bad were to happen, even though you're not responsible for the staffing ratios that caused that or the hiring practices that caused that, it would still be on you and your license, you know? So um, institutionally, I, I don't know, as long as we are participating in a for-profit healthcare society, I don't know that we can fix that. Globally, the only thing I feel like the public at large can do to help nurses is anytime somebody says something dumb, shut them down, like deplatform liars. I never want to hear somebody lie about the truth ever again. I will, I'm going to be the pitchiest person from here on out. Um, that's all we really can do is protect truth and protect sanity. The platform liars, don't listen to them. Turn off Fox News. Make sure that people who actually have your best interests at heart and who are who value each life as a treasure and not as a pawn on a chessboard for economic gain are in charge of our society and our health. There's a piece up in the Washington Post. Just this morning, it came up. Uh, the, the headline is, their neighbors called COVID-19 a hoax. Can these ICU nurses forgive them? This one's set in Appalachia. Um, and it's a long piece about, you know, people living in a community, nurses living, they're part of a community, they go to work, and their neighbors don't believe COVID is real. Um, and, you know, and I read the piece, and my my thought in reading it was, I think I kind of feel like we're beyond that question, like, is forgiveness really the issue? It seems to be more of like, just don't do things to kill me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's that, that, that thing that went around the internet a while back. It's like, I don't know how to explain to you that you should care, you know, like, right. why That's are you I mean. killing people? That's what it always comes down to people who are like, Oh, I can't wear this mask. Why are you killing people? I can't take a shot. Why are you killing people? At its essence, Everybody who's against public health measures is pro-killing people, whether they want to admit it to themselves or not. 
And that's what they're doing. And because karma sucks, it's probably not going to be themselves they kill. They're going to kill some poor immunocompromised person whose body can't mount an immune response, even though they've had the vaccine, or some kid who can't have gotten it yet, or somebody else who's got like a congenital lung issue. And if they get breakthrough COVID, it's going to kill them just because, you know? I, I just, I still am so sad about the way that masks and public health have been politicized in our country. And I know every other nurse who's sane, um, like, because I know there's nurses out there who voted for Trump, mystifyingly, but every other sane nurse out there agrees. And so, yeah, I, I, perhaps there is value in being kinder to those people and meeting them where they are at. But after I have gone through what I have gone through, I do not have the patience anymore. What do you think about these public health campaigns that um, center nurses? I mean, the first vaccinations in lots of states often were done in front of cameras with the governor on the side and a, and a, a nurse mm-hmm. or another healthcare worker receiving the vaccination. Is that, I mean, to me, that that's a, a powerful visual, but it could, I could see from your perspective, maybe that seems unnecessary or exploitative too. No, you know, I, I don't feel exploited by that. Anything that we can do to get shots into people's arms, I'm fine with. When Newsom came up with that lottery thing for California a while back, part of me was all like, but then the rest of me was like, fuck it, whatever it takes, man. You know, right. like the drain on the economy, if we keep having to fight COVID, is going to be so much more than if we, you know, pump $50 million into a lottery. That If the lottery actually works, hallelujah, you know? Mm. I was so impressed with something you said a minute ago, which that was really um, disarmingly honest about why nurses kept coming to work. And I think most of us have this notion like you do it because there's something, I mean, this comes back to the beginning of our conversation. There's nothing special about nurses. You're uh, not a self-interested. You, at some point in your life, you decided your, your goal was to take care of people. And I'm not saying none of that is true, yeah. but you, you've helped bring some realism to that discussion as, as well. And, and in the worst of things, what you said was you, you didn't come to work to put yourself at risk or your family at risk or necessarily because you were there because you had this overriding motivation to save lives. I'm not saying that's not there, but you came there for your coworkers. You yeah. came there because the people on the team on the floor counting on you. Yeah. But nurses have the same ideological diversity that the rest of America does. So I wonder about how the team has has stayed together. Have there been, and I guess you have only your own experience to, yeah. to talk about, but we, I'm we, curious about that. We had a couple people who were very vehemently Republican. And one, one of my nurse friends, when Trump made his inject bleach comment, she was like, oh, I'm done with him. And I was like, welcome back. <laughs> um, you know, and we just kind of shamed those people into taking their nonsense elsewhere. I am horrified that they exist. I don't understand what ideological drive they have that could be more important than actually saving lives because they're seeing us, you know, at least attempt to save lives every single day. But, um, yeah, I, I, it, it comes back to that whole thing. Like, you know, do you have empathy or not? And that's just the problem America is really grappling with right now is, is whether or not we can like look inward and like help each other heal versus fuck you. I got mine. Here's my bootstraps. You can go suck it, you know? So I very strongly fall in the former camp where I want everyone to get out of this alive. Um, but I'm not sure barring direct experience with COVID, how to reach all those other people 
and and it haunts me. I spend a lot of time thinking about that because their thought processes are so foreign to me that I, I just and and there and because it includes numbers of that include members of my own family. And so I keep thinking, oh, I'll I'll eventually come up with the right set of words that will unlock it in their head and all of a sudden they'll understand, you know, and that hasn't happened yet. And I don't think it's going to happen. And I'm kind of, you know, dealing with that now too. So I want to, um, I'm just putting up your Twitter handle, oh, yeah. Cassie Y4, because people should follow you on Twitter. It's a platform that you use um, to express yourself, but also there's some, you're doing the evangelism of health communication on there as well. There's one um, sort of uh, Twitter thread that, that you went into, and I can't remember now if I found it on the internet or found it on in your book, but that um, where you actually, I thought it was a novel and important way to get people to think about COVID, which is you talked about end of life preparation. And so it was like, it went beyond like, do you believe in COVID or not? It's like, it's, okay, whatever. But like, have you really thought about what it means to prepare to have those conversations? And I think it comes back to the context of you being put in the position of having to be, again, the interlocutor for those conversations. Mm -hmm. What was the reaction to those tweets, to that communication where you're walking people through like the end of life talk? You know, actually, um, for all the nonsense that Twitter can have, everybody who is a friend of mine on Twitter or who follows me has generally been really awesome. And I try to keep it as real and honest over there as I can. They've seen my mental health, all my ups and all my lows. And um, they've been in the saddle with me. And so that tweet thread went viral and a lot of people just agreed with it. Um I think some people who work in hospice, they're like, oh, you could have included our angle a little bit more, which is right. I wasn't thinking at the time. I was just, you know, freehanding something and and one of my many last ditch attempts to get people to take COVID seriously and not make me watch anybody else die. Hmm. So I just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Cassandra Alexander about nursing in the year of the pandemic, year and more now. Um, are you going to stay in nursing? That is such a good question, Scott. Um, you know, like a part of me really wants to get back on the horse again. Um, but just just because I haven't mentioned it so much here necessarily, although I did read that excerpt about my mental health. Um, I'm actually currently on a break from work because I had a suicidal crisis at work. And I um, basically started crying and I could not stop crying for about three weeks. And that's when I actually got diagnosed with PTSD instead of just thinking that I had PTSD. So like many tests in my life, I managed to ace that one as well. And um, so I'm still on break with that until August. And so my hope is that I have processed enough by writing this book because it has been super helpful. And luckily my therapist who knows that I'm a writer, she's been my therapist for a long time. She was like very pro book, like do this, it'll help you. Um, and I, and I do think that it did. Um, I, I can go about 72 hours without crying now. So that's an improvement. So I want to be a nurse again because I don't like thinking of myself as scared and I don't want to have this event be the thing that breaks me because I'm not broken, you know, well, fuck it. I am, but like, I, I have a lot of my self-esteem is wrapped up in being a nurse, you know, and I don't want to have this be the thing that takes me away from bedside. 
At the same time, though, if I cannot pack it anymore, I don't know, you know, so I'll just have to like play it by ear for this next month and see how things go. Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. You can sometimes catch COVID calls at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. And that's the case today. And I hope people um, it'll be a little bit early in the morning for folks in North America. But I do hope hope people will join me and certainly people uh, in Europe and in Asia join me for my discussion today with Hyung Jang who's a member of the Justice Party in South Korea. And we're going to talk about Korea, South Korea and COVID-19. And we're going to talk about it particularly from the perspective of folks who've been in uh, institutions and dealing um, with deinstitutionalization and those issues in South Korea. So please do join me for that. This is going to be a very special COVID calls. It's going to be uh, with simultaneous translation in English and in Korean and I have my translator, Hyuna Kyum, who's going to help with that today. So that's at 5.30 p.m. today, which is today for me, July 7th, uh, 5.30 p.m. Korea time. We talked to Hyung Jang on COVID calls. And I want to thank Cassandra Alexander for the book, for your time, for your social media presence. Take care of yourself. Thanks you. for being with me today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This is really nice, Scott. I appreciate it. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.